Thanks again to Donnie and David and the team for leading worship tonight. Again, it's my privilege to share with you again. Um, we're going to be back in Hebrews 6. So if you go to your Bibles, I told you this morning that if the morning was... How do I say this while I go, Mary? If, if the morning was where you got ambushed and beat up and left on the side of the road, then tonight is the Good Samaritan that comes and picks you up and takes you to be nursed back to health. The second half of this chapter is some good stuff. We treaded some heavy ground this morning. We, we really did. We, we, we saw, I mean, some of the things we saw, we saw the importance of growing beyond infancy, beyond basic doctrine, beyond the starting point that we, you know, it's almost like just knowing you're saved is, is not enough for the full, for the full, the abundant Christian life. We should be growing deeper in Christ, you know. We saw some stern warnings, that's, that's an understatement, stern warnings of, uh, we'll use the word apostasy, the falling away from completely God and His grace and what, in the event that does happen, what that must mean as best we can tell from the old Council of Scripture. And that, frankly, I mean, that, that'll rattle some cages. Uh, rattles my cage every, every time we, I encounter it. Hopefully, though, when we encounter text like that that does that, it produces a good fear that can help keep us safe in our walk with Christ, perhaps perhaps maybe even help some see their full need of Him for true conversion. And I did say good fear. Every parent knows what that means. Every parent knows what that means, a good fear. Good fears keep our kids safe, right? Uh, fear of a hot stove. Fear of playing in the street. Not fear like... Lying, lying, they're lying in their beds at night worrying, oh, the street's going to come into my bedroom and get me. No, but fear that, that keeps them from doing things that cause them harm. And that same kind of fear, fear of falling away from God so as to prove we, we weren't His in the first place, that kind of fear can, can be part of what drives us. And I'm not saying we live our lives consumed by fear. That's not what I mean. But every parent, if you're a parent, you know what I mean, that there's a kind of fear that can help keep us safe. And it can help be part of what drives us to want to keep growing in Christ, to continually demonstrate that we are, in fact, His. Most importantly, though, I hope that we didn't get so heavy that we missed the encouragement at the end, because we did find some encouragement this morning as believers, as we saw both the source and the method by which we can have full assurance of our salvation until the end. So as a quick reminder, because especially because it flows, that last part flows directly into tonight's text. It is the very next text in the, in the chapter. Um, we, we know, we found this morning, the source of that assurance is, is God, is the gospel himself. It's that we come to see, and of course we know this, we know this is true, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves, we come to see that we couldn't save ourselves to begin with, and we can't keep ourselves saved. That kind of work's not up to us. And it's, it's grace. It's all the work of God in us, right? Uh, and it's all grace. And the, the method by which we have, or maybe for our, the purpose of this morning, uh, better worded, the method by which we demonstrate or prove that we have our assurance that we're in fact Him is our perseverance in Christ, our following, our our, well, how did we say it this morning? Gospel-fueled works, living, following Christ. 
We know, of course, that our, they're not, that's not, we don't earn grace, we don't earn favor, but we do those things because of what he has already done in us. With, you know, what, and knowing that, then we, we, we strive, we work, we press, we, we put in the effort as, that, as verse uh, 12 said, to not be sluggish in the practice of our faith so that we are evidencing the presence of our faith more accurately evidencing the presence of the one in whom our faith rests within us. Does that make sense? Okay. So our morning text ended with, it really did end with an exhortation to, to do these things, to, to show the same earnestness, verse 11, to have full assurance of hope to the end. And I, I, I don't know what that outburst was at the end. I really don't. I just, I find myself marveling at the wonder and the, and the, and the beauty and the overwhelming nature of the relentlessness and the limitlessness and the goodness of God's gospel to us. And there are times when I marvel when others don't marvel. And I know, yeah, I don't want to go down too far down that road. I didn't even have that part written down. You, some of you guys know I write everything down. But I got to tell you again, when you wrestle through parts of that message, even with the assurance at the end, we, I, le- I was left, I'm always left asking, okay, but, but how? Where, where, how am I going to be able to do that? I got so hung up in verses 4 to 6, so caught up in the questions that they raise, as I mentioned this morning, you know, in the last couple of weeks, had some moments of, 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 of panic. I mean, that passage lists some good things that people who never truly come to faith have had opportunity for and exposure to. And then you look at your own life and you see that it's not all good. And, but God is so good and so gracious in His great mercy to us to give us the rest of Hebrews 6, let alone the rest of Hebrews, let alone the rest of the Word. He is so good to remind us that His gospel to us is not ours, it's His gospel. It's not us up to us and our own ability to save us and to keep us and to cleanse us and to change us. It's not up to us to convert others either. I thought about that phrase, just kind of as my thinking was random. Uh, sometimes you're the only Jesus that someone else is going to see. You know, you know that phrase, sometimes you're the only Jesus somebody, sometimes you're the only Jesus that somebody will ever see. To which sometimes I think, well, that's too bad for them. If I'm the only Jesus they're ever going to see. If I'm the only Jesus they're ever going to see, I mean, they don't have much hope. But it's not ours to save and to convert and to change and transform, it's His. Those things are worked out in our efforts and our repentance and our striving that we talked about this morning. Again, verse 11, we work those things out to, to show the same earnestness that we have full assurance of hope. So with the question of how, how is that possible? Where does that come from? Where, does, where is that rooted? Um, we come back to our text tonight. The heading over this block of text in my Bible is the certainty of God's promise. 
To which, from later on in the text, I add these two words as a subtitle. The certainty of God's promise. Hold fast. Hold fast. So let's read our text and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. For when God made a promise, we're in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God, thank you, Father, for... For your word that you have given and provided to us to know you more, to know you better, to day by day as we learn and read and go there to learn more and appreciate more what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that your promises are sure as we're about to look at and dependable and completely steadfast. Lord, let these truths and these words begin to seep and take root and hold fast of our hearts so that we might hold fast to them. And you work in our hearts what you've already purposed to do for our good, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now again, back in verses 11 and 12, we're given some great encouragement to the word there is persevere in our faith until the end, meaning our, our life, of course. The last motivation there that we see, the last word is the promises. The promises. Of course, we know that means in verse 12, the promises of God. It says to be imitators of those who through faith and patience, again, things God works in them, they inherit the promises. We should show the same earnestness, right, as them. So we're pointed back in verse 12 to Abraham and the promise that God made to him to bless him and to multiply him. We're going to look at the specific promise being referenced here in a moment. We see in the promises of Abraham, we see in the nation of Israel, literally now scattered all over the globe, the partial fulfillment of that promise. But we also know, especially if you've been in church long and heard it explained, you know that we are uh, the spiritual descendants of Abraham through faith in the same God who made that promise to him. Right? Okay? The promise God made to Abraham way back then is ultimately fulfilled through the gospel of Jesus Christ and its work in us and in the world. Now, again, as we mentioned this morning, considering who the letter was written to, the recipients of this letter really wouldn't have needed much explanation in these verses about what that meant, the promise of God to Abraham, which is why there's not a lot of detail right here about the content of the promise. And rather, we're going to go there in just a moment, but we don't need a whole lot because what the, the, the beauty of what I see here in these verses is not really the explanation of the content of the promise. 
Let's just say, and again, we're going to go to the promise in Genesis in a, in a moment. Let's say it's, it's an aforementioned promise of God to Abraham. It's ultimate fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that means for us. All that's contained in the promise, right? What I love here in these verses is a description of the quality of the promise. That's what I really like. In short, the promise, in short, it's perfect. God's promise is perfect. Now, as we've mentioned this morning, we know the promise is perfect because the God who makes the promise is perfect. It's completely dependable. And as if the promise of that God wasn't enough for us, we're told here that he solidified his promise to Abram, Abraham, Abram, by swearing an oath. Now, if you want to go back, you can write it down or you can mark it down. The promise we're talking about is in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 to 18. This is right after the angel. If you remember the story, God told Abram, this is before he was called Abraham, God told Abram to sacrifice his own son to him. He was testing Abram. And we know that the testing of Abram wasn't really, uh, wasn't really for God's benefit. It was for Abram's benefit, right? Uh, and so right after the, the angel prevented Abram from following through on that directive to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then God provided a substitute sacrifice in the form of a ram, huge, obvious, marvelous preview of the gospel right there, it's provided a substitute sacrifice in the form of a ram. Then God spoke through his angel in verse 16 in Genesis 22 and said this, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now the thing about the oath there, it just, it, it, it just it, it catches me off guard sometimes when I think about God swearing an oath. But we kind of have to get back in Abraham's view of what that meant. Oh, oaths. Is it oaths or oaths? Look at my speech English people. I don't know. Uh, they were viewed as a unwaveringly very binding agreement at a high, like life depending, if that's a thing. Life, your life depends on it kind of level of importance, Right? Verse 16 in Hebrews, go back to Hebrews 6, it reminds us of their legal weight. Verse 16, uh, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. When someone swore an oath, the dispute was over. It was settled. To swear an oath, and again, these folks didn't need a little ex much explanation here, but I, but I think we do. To swear an oath was to put oneself under the, the highest and the strictest of binding obligation. Still now, well, for today anyway, when we're in court, we swear an oath before God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Oaths were exponentially more serious back in this time that we're looking at. Also, when someone swore by an oath, it says they always swear by something greater than themselves. They were bringing significance to their oath, and to their minds, that was the end of it. Whatever had been sworn must happen, right? 
you, ha- you really you have to get a picture of how serious a matter this was to these people. You may have you may have heard someone say, like in the movies or maybe in real life, I, s- I swear on my mother's life. You've heard that kind of thing, right? I, s- I swear on my son's life. I'm using my son. In, in this time, here's what that would have meant. I'm putting myself under such an obligation to fulfill this oath that I swear on my son's life. I'm putting myself under such a strict obligation that if I don't fulfill it, if I welch on it, if I fail to follow through, you have permission to kill those by whom I have sworn to perform it. That's how serious a matter it was. So if I swore by my son's life and then I fail to keep that oath, you can kill my son. I'm not saying you can. I'm saying if I didn't keep the oath back then. Now, God, as we see here, is the one by whom they would swear, right? Because he was greater. And we know that God has no one higher by whom he can swear. So here he makes an oath. He swore by himself. Let me put it to you this way. God, as we know, I don't think we need to explain much in this room. God is the highest authority. Period, right? God is the most, he's the most perfect of perfect. He's the holiest of holy. He is subject to no one greater. So when he wanted to confirm his promise by swearing an oath, which seems a little bit odd to me to begin with, but if he's going to do it, he must swear by himself. In so doing... He places himself under the highest of obligations to perform that oath, which is his own name, his own glory. It's almost, if we understand the seriousness of an oath, it's almost like God is saying, I'm making you this promise, and if I don't keep this oath, Abraham, then I will no longer be God. And that ain't going to happen. Let me say that again. That's not going to happen. Just in case somewhere in there you think, I think that's possible. That's not possible. Which just hopefully helps you see the weight of what God was doing here. We're going to unpack this just a little bit more. So, why would he do that? Why would God need to do that? Well, it wasn't for God. It, It was for Abram. Abraham. We know from later in Hebrews that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Somewhere, even at that point, Abram had experienced enough to know that if God said it, it was going to happen. Right? He knew that much. However, if God went so far as to put himself under an oath by swearing to himself, then it was absolutely going to happen. You see, it's promise upon promise. It's security within security. It's foundation upon foundation. Right? This was for Abraham and our benefit. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He did these things to give Abraham, and by extension us, a word that we would come to know we could depend on, and then showed us why we can depend on it. Now, this is one of those statements when I say that, to show us why we know we can depend on it. You have to take the whole of the Bible and all we know and have experienced about God. Because we know in this room, we can always trust God. 
we can always trust the promises of God. The reason we know we can always trust the promises of God is God. Let me say that again. The reason we know we can always trust God and His promises is God. I've put it this way. You've heard me say it this way before, maybe. God has proven Himself far too many times for us to doubt Him. But we do. Let's just be honest. We do. We, we, we doubt. There are moments when we waver in belief. We resist. We rebel. This is why, I mentioned this verse this morning, this is why Jude 24 and 25 is so crucial and precious to me. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I couldn't save myself. I can't keep myself saved. Only God can do that. And he promised to do it. And because he promised to do it, I know he's going to make it happen. And when I doubt, when I waver, I know I can run in repentance back to the one who made it possible and will continue to make it possible. For, for me to get there, to be with him in glory, and to show that I'm tr truly his on the way. Because I can't even do that on my own. It, it must be God. So when Abraham was made a promise, by extension of which we are made promises... That promise was solidified by an oath by God, sworn by God upon himself to fulfill, by extension of which we can rely on that same oath, that same confidence. We have God's promise. We have God's oath. Do you see how one strengthens the other? And just, it continues to amaze me that the one didn't really need strengthening. He did the second one for us, not for him. God did. Do you see why the, the good weight of the certainty that the writer is speaking about would press in, in a good way, press in and on the hearts of these people that Paul was giving this confidence, this assurance to? Do you see why it should press into our hearts the certainty of God's promise? We have his promise and we have his oath. Verse 18, so that by two, not just one, not just the unchangeable nature of the God that we know is unchangeable, but by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie ever. Is there anything that God can't do? Yes, he cannot lie. And if he has called you to salvation, as we said this morning, what he has done cannot be undone. It was never up to you to do in the first place. Now, finish verse 18 with me. Yeah, let's just start that verse over. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now this... For me, this is where the, 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 the weight 
of the certainty of God's promises, the certainty, the surety, the assurance of it, the certainty of the gospel is felt most in this passage. We who have fled for refuge. Refuge here was a reference to the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. These were places, among other things, that a man could run to if he had accidentally killed someone. And he could seek refuge and safety there from the Avengers, not the movie. The people who are seeking to avenge the death of the man he accidentally killed. It's so funny, I have to clarify that now because of the movie. Or maybe I didn't. I don't know, maybe it's just me. <laughs> Even the names of those cities pointed to the character of God when you put them all together. They provided a place of safety, of, of amnesty, even for the offender. Do not forget, friends, that you and I were the offender. We were sinners both by nature and by will. Both by nature and by will, we were sinners and we were the offenders. We were the liars and the murders and the adulterers and the foreign. We were all those things. Don't, don't act all spiritual like you think you're separate from sinners. Right? That was us. And in the presence of and under the wrath of a holy, righteous God, whom our sin, whatever it was was first and foremost an offense to, we were doomed to judgment. The avenger, who was God Almighty, had every right to wipe us out. How much greater and better is a refuge of the gospel for us now? How much greater a refuge is the gospel for us than the cities of refuge was even for the accidental murderer? Right? As Matthew Henry says... The gospel is a refuge for all sinners who shall have the, the heart to flee to it. Speaking of the refuge of the gospel of Christ for us, Warren Wiersbe says, I like the way he phrased this, no avenger, no avenger can touch us because he, Jesus, has already died and arisen from the dead. And we need refuge. Every one of us, need ref we need refuge and safety and protection from our sin and its ultimate penalty, and in Christ we have been offered it. When we know that, when we make the refuge of the gospel our own by repentance of sin and faith in Christ, then we have all the reason in the world and all the resources we need to, as Philippians says, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know what, that, that, that phrase makes a little more sense to me in light of the whole of Hebrews 6. <laughs> Work out our salvation with a, with, a, with, a, with a good fear and trembling, fear that can help keep us safe. Hmm. Somebody write that down, I need to go back to that. <laughs> we have what we need to hold fast to Christ, as it says in a moment. We have what we need to cling to Him. We have what we need to fight sin and to pursue holiness for His namesake. We have what we need, go back to the first of the chapter, to grow beyond, to go beyond basic beginner level infantile things, to know the deeper things of God. We have what we need to bear good fruit. We have what we need to be assured of better things for us. 
we, and things that belong to salvation. We have what we need to show earnestness that we have full assurance of hope in persevering in our faith. To not be sluggish. To imitate those who we know by their faith and patience have already inherited the promises. We have what we need to do everything Jesus asks us to do. That is Christ Himself by the indwelling Holy Spirit. With Him, with Christ by the Holy Spirit, you can, you can, you can, you can, meaning Him in you, you can live a life that's pleasing to Him. Part of which, because my first thought is always, but I mess up so much. Part of that life is repenting when you don't. Without Him, without the refuge, without the gospel, you can do nothing. Right? So we, we flee to Him for refuge in the gospel. And we keep fleeing there for refuge and to hold fast. Verse 18 again, to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. To the hope that you have in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my song, my cornerstone, the solid ground, firm, firm, firm through the fiercest storm. Yes! That song preaches. Every time we sing it, that song just will preach. It is Christ. It's Christ who made it possible for us to have a refuge. It's Christ who makes it possible for us to enter the refuge. It's Christ who makes it possible for us to remain safe in the refuge. And by Him and by the Holy Spirit, we do our part by holding fast to Him who is our hope. The last line of that song, and the last part of that I just quoted, leads me back to where we are in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. Anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He is our anchor and our hope who enters behind the veil. Now the, the anchor, this is a metaphor you've heard. If you've been around church a long time, you've heard songs, you've heard hymns about the anchor. The anchor keeps the shift stable when a storm comes. Right? The anchor, you drop the anchor, it moors deep into the bedrock, deep into the sand, below the turbulent surface during the storm. And in your circumstance, the anchor we have keeps us stable and steady. We may be rocked, but we do not necessarily need be overturned if Christ is our anchor. What is our anchor? It's Christ. The hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, this is a temple reference here that, again, if you've been in church much, uh, you will recognize what that means to go behind the curtain. For those who maybe have not, the veil, the curtain, is a reference to the tabernacle, which was the Hebrews, which they traveled with in the early, in the Old Testament, as their, as their mobile meeting place with God. And the setup of the tabernacle was later transferred to the temple. There was the outer court, which anyone could enter. There was the inner court, which only Jews could enter under requirement of certain rituals and sacrifices. And then there was the holy place. And then inside that was the holy of holies, which could only be entered once a year by the high priest and only after an exhaustive list 
of sacrifice and ritual cleansings and then more sacrifice and then more cleansing and then sacrifice for all the people and then more cleansing and then sacrifice. It was, it was this exhaustive, complicated, very particular process that had to be followed exactly. Or if he went in without having followed the proper uh, procedures set out in Leviticus in the Old Testament, he, he may die. It was that serious. And then the priest would pass through the ceremonial veil, this huge curtain, very heavy, very thick, very ornate, and enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people of Israel. But when Jesus offered His sacrifice, Himself, His own shed blood on the cross, as Hebrews 10 tells us, once for all, for all who would come in faith, to put an end to the necessity of that old system, he symbolically went behind that curtain. Through him and his sacrifice on the cross, we now all have opportunity to follow him there into the presence of God in relationship rather than in judgment. He went there before us and he made the way for us to follow. That's what that means. The anchor of our soul and the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf is Jesus' work on the cross. Now, we won't get into Melchizedek in detail tonight. We will only say that, the, and because the next chapter does that, if you wanted to read further, you could read into Hebrews 7. We will say that the mention of him points, and it's used a couple of times in Hebrews, uh, it points to the offices of prophet, priest, and king, all being personified in one person. Melchizedek is an obscure Old Testament character that in his town of Salem, that was be to Jerusalem later, uh, he held all of those offices. In, in being, and we know that ultimately those three offices are all fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. In being our prophet, he has fulfilled God's word to us. In being our priest, he went before God on our behalf and made it possible for us to follow him there. In being our king, he rose from the dead to prove his victory over death itself, ascended to the right hand of the throne of heaven, and now rules and reigns over all until he returns to put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus fulfills all of those offices perfectly. Here in this, in this verse, we're functioned on his, focused on his function as priest, mediator before God on our behalf, making it possible for us to follow him into God's presence by his own shed blood. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for what Christ has done on your behalf? Sometimes I'll say, I'm so, I'm so glad I trusted Jesus, and then I catch myself. No. I think we should say, I'm so glad that God, by His grace, has allowed me, has allowed me to trust in Jesus and be a part of what He has done so that I can know God in relationship. I'm so glad God did that. I, I shouldn't say, I'm so glad I've trusted Jesus, because if it wasn't for Him, I wouldn't have trusted Him. You see that? almost want to go back to Ephesians 2, but I'd preach another hour. I don't want to do that. But we know that even, even the ability for us to believe in Christ is a gift of God working in us. And I, for one, 
am glad indeed. So Christian, when you waver, when you wonder how you're going to continue, when you wonder how you're going to get back on track when we, when we run amok and run amiss, when the weight of this life wants, wants to overwhelm you and take you down, hold fast. Hold fast to the certainty of God's promise in the gospel of Jesus Christ that He has saved you and He alone will keep you. And let that fuel your faith and your fight to serve Him and follow Him well. If you are here tonight, perhaps, and you've not yet come to trust Christ, then again, as I always do, allow me a moment to share the gospel in this way. As we've already heard, God is perfect. God is holy. Right? God is, is, uh, is just. He's all of those words sum up in holy. Man, us, we are not. Turn the news on and in 30 seconds you'll have all the proof you need. Man, mankind is not holy. And because of that, because God is holy and right and just, we are irreparably separated. Because unholiness, first and foremost, is always, first and foremost is always an offense to a holy God. Because of that, we are separated from Him and only have the option of standing before Him in judgment. But Christ came. He didn't leave us there. Christ came and did what we could not. By His shed blood on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, He made a way for us to, to know holy, right, just, perfect, pure, merciful, faithful, loving God in love and in relationship rather than in wrath and judgment. Jesus made the way because there was no way we could do it. You have one part. And that is when God opens your eyes to that truth and touches your heart. You respond by turning away from sin, turning away from self, self and trusting in Jesus. It really is that simple. We turn from sin. We trust in Christ. So if you've never done that, I'd invite you to come do that tonight. To come repent of your, your sin and trust in Christ and run to the refuge that you have been offered in Him. If you are His already, then worship. Both here together as we sing in just a moment and worship in how you live and how you follow and how you serve and how you love. Give Him thanks. And know that as you do these things, even these things are evidences of His grace and presence by the Holy Spirit working in you. We have God's promise. and We have God's oath. Sworn by Abraham and to us. Trust and worship the God of the promise. To continue and to complete His good work in you. Let's pray and then we'll worship together. God, thank you for thank you for your promise that we know is fully dependable and right that we know is solid that we know we can trust in. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that in your gospel and in how you work in us day by day. Thank you, Lord, for those of us that know you in faith. Lord, thank you for calling us, for allowing us to know you. Now, as we sing together, 
whether we come to the altar to speak to you or just worship together, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise. For you alone are worthy. Help us and continue to increase our faith to trust the God of the promise. So now as we sing, Lord, you hear our praise and you work as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.